0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Liebman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. <music> This is Think Out Loud on OPB, I'm Dave Miller. Oregon was the first state in the country a few years ago to ban single-family zoning in all but the smallest cities, meaning duplexes and triplexes can now be built next door to single-family homes. The idea is to increase density within cities while preserving land for farms and conservation outside of them. It's just one aspect of the YIMBY movement. That's YIMBY as opposed to NIMBY, meaning yes in my backyard, not no. Yes to transit, to homeless services, to density. We talked about all of these ideas when we hosted a conversation at Portland's Revolution Hall as part of the last night of the YIMBY Town Conference. We had four guests. Marisa Zapata is the director of the Portland State University Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative. Sam Diaz is the executive director of 1000 Friends of Oregon. Jerusalem Demsis is a policy writer at the Atlantic Magazine who's written a lot about the future of cities. And Rukaya Adams is the chief investment officer at Meyer Memorial Trust and the board chair of Albina Vision Trust. I started by asking all of them, beginning with Rukaya for their vision of what we should be working towards in terms of housing.
1: I think we should all be housed, and that we need different kinds of housing for different stages in our lives. Housing that's culturally specific. I think the absence of adequate housing is holding us back economically and socially. I hope that in the future we have dense urban housing where working people or poor people can afford to live in neighborhoods that they can walk to work and walk to school and walk to the grocery store, that that kind of living isn't the domain of the wealthy. Um, I hope that our housing is connected to walkable communities that center children. I hope that in our uh, neighborhoods that are dense and affordable, that the streetlights are not blue spectrum and they don't turn dark brown skin purple at night and instead illuminate the color of our skin. Um, More than anything, I hope that, you know, that it isn't just shelter that we provide for people or even housing, but that we can generate a sense of home for people in many forms. <laughs> That's what I hope.
2: Sam, what about you? Yeah, I'm gonna go, I mean, I just entered dream time on that one. So thank you, <laughs> Um You know, I would say A Thousand Friends really looks at the balance, striking the balance. And Oregon really has made sure to not pit farmland against housing. <laughs> Or our beautiful scenic vistas, you know, where we love to just be in nature, be with each other, uh, be with be with ourselves. Um, we don't put that pit that against housing either. Um, so I would love to see the Oregon lean into its strengths, um, use the tools that we have, use the tools that a lot of yimbies a lot of housing advocates have created for us, um, like the residential infill project. Um, and I do have to get. I do have to like raise up some numbers, right, because we have 150,000 homes short right now in our state, and we got to keep up uh, with the 20,000-home demand every year. So um, I do want some accountability and, um, uh, by our governments to hold on to that, produce that housing, make sure it's safe and stable, make sure people of all incomes have access to it.
0: You, you all can clap anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marisa, what's your dream?
3: So I think for me, it is this idea that everyone can access the kind of structure that they want, the kind of unit and housing unit that they will, would prefer to live in. Um, I want to be able to move away from, you can only have a tiny box apartment if you make X amount of money, if what you really want is a single family detached home. That said, I also want to maintain our climate goals and allow us to have more dense single family homes, duplexes and townhomes if people want those. Because I do wanna make sure that we aren't just doing what my home state has done, consuming all the land. I'm from Texas, consumed everything for massive lots and big trucks. Um, and so I would like us to be able to say, first, where do you want to live? How do you wanna spend your life inside your building or your structure? To what degree is that safe, affordable, culturally specific, trauma-informed? All of those things matter. I would also like to never have to say supply or demand again when it comes to housing.
0: (laughs) What does that mean? To not, I mean, I I understand the words, but but in practice, uh, is that another way of saying that you want to take this away from the way we think about markets?
3: Yeah, I mean, on the extreme, it's the idea that we would decommodify housing, right? And that's a very extreme perspective. But the other is at least to be able to separate out and understand that there are a lot of people, because we have such a market-oriented philosophy or orientation to housing, that people will never be able to afford even adequate housing, let alone the preferred housing that they believe they could thrive in. And so if you're always going to be looking at the penciling out, the penciling out, trying to make sure that you're spending the least amount of money on people, that is gonna forever undermine the goal of putting people in the housing that they want to live in. I just wanted to say to Marisa that I wanted to build on her vision, which I really like, uh, which
1: is evolving our view of of housing as, as not being an investment asset But being uh, for some people to make double-digit returns, but other people to to live, we really have to stop thinking about it as an asset that will produce double-digit returns year over year, or else we can't get to reasonable treatment of people who need housing, bottom line. But... I want to build on the other dream too which is we often think about the growth boundaries and infill i almost want to talk about infilling nature into the city as well we know that there are issues in some communities with um, tree coverage and trees being cut down and i can imagine a future where our gardens are micro gardens and micro parks and that we engage with the, the natural environment not in these large vistas that are difficult to manage And, you know, build, but in small ways,
4: every day. Hmm. Anyway, I'm inspired by these dreams.
0: Uh, But we haven't heard Jerusalem's dream yet.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I think about housing, I often think about freedom of movement when there is housing abundance, when there's enough housing for people to move where they need to move at every stage of life to be near their families, to be near the jobs they want to work, or um, you know for whatever reason where they want to live, um, that is intricately tied with housing and with movement. So if someone in you know Missouri is 18 years old and they want to go to college in Washington, D.C., or they want to go to Portland, um, there needs to be housing available for them there, or else they don't have freedom of movement, they don't have freedom at all. Um, if there's not housing when you you. you are a senior and you need to downsize because you can't, your home is not accessible to you, you can't go upstairs anymore, um, and there's not housing in your neighborhood and your community, you don't have freedom of movement. And so to me, the dream is that there is housing abundance, that freedom of movement exists for everyone, and that you're not constrained um, about how you want to structure your life and the structure of your family's life by the fact that um, the only kinds of homes we're building are for one specific set of dreams that only apply at one point in life for some people. So I think that's, that's what I conceptualize.
0: Mm. Um, Rukaya, I wanna go back to you. I thought we could get a little bit of history. I'm curious what you see as the most important pieces uh, in terms of Portland or Oregon housing history that, that brought us to where we are now.
1: Sure. Thanks for the question. I I think a lot of people don't realize that housing and housing affordability and availability have been a problem for Portland since its inception. Uh, Before the city became one, when Portland, East Portland, and Albina combined, um, after around 1900, 1920, we didn't have dense, affordable central city housing when the wartime boom kicked off in Portland as we were shipbuilders and uh, contributing to the, to the war effort, the federal government at that time, around, around the time of World War I, wanted the mayor of Portland to establish a housing authority to receive federal dollars um, in order to build what we would know today as pre-war housing. A part of the reason why Portland doesn't have a lot of that housing is that wealthy developers and business people didn't want dense affordable housing in the central city, and so the way that they avoided that was by not having a housing authority at all. Portland didn't actually get a housing authority until 1941. By that point, Vanport was already built. And for the folks who are not from Portland, Vanport was an affordable housing development that was built in the floodplain that was the intersection of the Columbia and the Willamette River. Thousands of people were displaced when the rivers flooded and those homes were destroyed. And we think of Vanport as a natural disaster. Fundamentally, it was an affordable housing disaster right? So this issue of Portland not having enough affordable housing was there from the very beginning of the city. The issue of of having wealthy people control the access to housing was an issue in the very beginning. Portland had scow villages where people lived in tenements on the river for decades. Thousands of people lived there. Um, Giles Lake, which is where the Pearl is today, was basically a marsh, and there was an affordable housing development built there. So we've had this issue of needing more affordable housing and having relatively few people control access to the construction and development of housing. So this isn't a current issue for Portland. It's an issue that we've had since the city was formed. And the exciting thing about this moment is that we're finally acknowledging, we're reckoning with that history and saying that that's not the way that we want to be going forward. But for the young folks in the room, this didn't happen in the last 10 years. My family's been here for seven generations. There has never been a generation that didn't have an affordable housing problem.
0: Sam, you're at Thousand Friends of Oregon, um, a nonprofit that is intricately tied to statewide land use planning and and really well-known for Senate Bill 100 that Governor McCall signed in 1973, um, which was more about preserving farmland than preserving a livable climate. I don't think that was a phrase that was that people used a lot in 1973. I, I don't know, maybe it was. Uh, but I'm curious if you think statewide land use planning goals have cu- kept up with the most pressing issues that we have now. If, if statewide and then pushed down to all the different localities that manage you know, urban growth boundaries and and land use, if it's set up for 21st century problems?
2: So I I will say, so for those who may not be familiar, um, the statewide planning program includes 19 goals and guidelines. One of them is focused on housing, um, and so I'll I'll dive into that. Um, And it requires local jurisdictions to produce abundant, diverse, affordable housing. Um, It calls out Oregonians at all income levels, um, and that is really the kicker. That's the, state, that's the statewide floor for all of our cities and towns to, to really uh, develop and, and take, take ownership of allowing and producing housing, um, whether that's uh, zoning changes or whether that's funding and financing mechanisms. Um, that's, that's really the responsibility, right, of the cities and towns. The state comes in with carrots, so in the form of competitive grant programs, um, planning grants, Um, uh, by formula, and sometimes a hammer. Although I think we have seen the state legislature start to bat away some of the authority that the director of Department of Land Conservation Development, which is the state agency that really guards and enacts the statewide planning program, they're charged with, right? The director, year after year, gets slapped on the wrist saying, you know what, you can't bring that appeal. You can't come down hard on cities and counties. And so it's in this in this role, I've been able to talk to director after director after they leave the department, right? You know, kind of all the directors in there are like, yep, the legislature. Uh, took away my authority to bring an appeal uh, for cities and counties, and so I do think that there does need to be an enhanced authority, and we really need to empower the department, the state department, to have enough have enough resources um, and have enough authority to make sure that cities and towns realize gold tens obligations. Um, if not, right, that's where a thousand friends come in as the watchdog. And we're actually currently intervening in lawsuits in Hood River in Eugene because a bunch of neighbors are bringing forward lawsuits because they don't like duplexes. They don't like triplexes. And so A Thousand Friends is serving as the watchdog group. We're also, you know, I think co-creating solutions for what infill can look like, which is what you see in residential infill project here in Portland, Better Housing by Design. And the state state analog, right, House Bill 2001, which requires all medium-sized cities to require that. So now we're saying, okay, State Department, cities and towns, your hands may have been tied, but here's the gift of infill, make it happen.
3: I think what's tough for me on this, this front of the land use system goals, um, I'm a goal one person, that's community engagement, also like goal 10, housing. Um, isn't so much do they need to be redone, it's that the DLCD, the Department of Land Conservation and Development, for reasons that SAM is articulating, doesn't actually implement them to the degree that they could be, right? And so I don't know that we've had a chance to see if we actually use sticks what it would look like to have housing be produced in the way that Goal 10 states it should be produced. Um, and so... I always hesitate a little bit to say, let's you know, take down the goals and reimagine them. I'd rather just see us actually try to implement them more strongly.
0: I wanna um, turn to the the zoning change um, that because Oregon was the first state in the country, um, I think fo- followed by California relatively recently, um, to get rid of single-family zoning basically in, in everything but the smallest cities statewide. Um, Jerusalem, what does this say about, and, and it's worth noting just briefly that, that the state did this before the city enacted this. The city had been working on it for a couple years and eventually the state did it and then the, the city has its own sort of system that follows. What does this say, Jerusalem, about the power at the state level as opposed to the local level or the federal level to, to set and change housing policy?
4: Yeah, so I think the first and most important thing to understand is that the only power localities have is the power that states give them. The only powers enumerated by the Constitution of the United States are to the federal government and to the states. So anything that localities are doing, it is because the states have allowed them to do it, either through their own constitutions at the state level or because the state legislature has decided to allow that to happen. So at the end of the day, while often we think about, um, everyone always likes to say like, housing is local, housing politics is local. um, That is often a way for state legislators not to take ownership of the fact that they have allowed a lot of these localities to get away with um, really exclusionary policies. So, uh, so, and I think it's really important to think about why we would want the state to be in charge of a lot of these decisions. The, the The important thing is that when you think about who is affected by whether or not housing gets built, it is not just the people who are currently living in that city. And so what you want to do is make sure that the, that the decision-making body, that the political body that's deciding whether or not housing gets built or how it's planned is encompassing many more of those people. Because It's relevant to people right outside of Portland or in a suburb of Portland, that another suburb is building housing because you're not just gonna stay in a place that you're living for your entire life. People move and there are future people who don't have a voice or a say. And so when you move the decision to the state level, it encompasses more of the people that are going to be affected by the lack of housing that exists in many of these exclusive cities and suburbs. And secondarily, I think um, one big cost that a lot of people don't realize is that when housing isn't built, when you create um, this massive shortage we're seeing not just here in Oregon, but also across the country, we're facing a shortage of 3.8 million homes across the country. Um, That's an estimate from last year, so it's growing. Uh, When you have that problem, you're creating massive economic costs. There there are estimates that this is in the form of wages of over $10,000 a year for the average worker. Um, These are not things that local elected officials are going to internalize, because when people vote for local elected officials, they don't say, I blame you for the larger economic situation. So they're not held accountable for the fact that the decisions that they're making are still affecting that larger economic situation. And so putting at the state level where voters do hold their elected officials accountable for saying, hey, are jobs coming to Oregon? Are are wages going up? People care about that and they care about their statewide elected officials um, being responsible for that making sure that the place where decisions about housing are being made are also the place where voters are holding people accountable for economic outcomes is the way that you make sure that you actually end up building sufficient housing for everyone. So I think this is a big reason why, when you see the wins um, that are currently happening for the housing abundance movement, you're seeing them at the state level much more than you're seeing at the local level. Um, When you look at California, when you look at Connecticut, when you look at um, Oregon, when you look at Washington State, these are places where you have a lot of activist groups and A lot of local elected officials, honestly, often, not publicly, begging the state to just take the power out of their hands because they are not able to make the decisions that need to be made to provide economic opportunity for everyone.
0: Um, Sam, every time um, I talk about the end of single-family zoning. I have to remind myself, um, and and maybe listeners, that it simply means that builders can build multi-unit properties in certain places, not that they have to. How big a difference? I mean, and I remember being told by by the speaker of the house and other folks when they were pushing for House Bill Two Thousand One that it's going to take time. It's going to take decades for this to to really for us to see the, the real fruits of this. But it's been a couple years now. I mean, what? how big a difference has the end of single-family zoning made?
2: Uh, this is kind of like the test of your advocacy, right? Is to see what is, this impl- what is implementation going to look like? How long are permits going to take, right? So um, this is the latest uh, from the city of Portland. Again, for those who may not be familiar, uh, Portland City Council adopted residential infill project Uh, removing the ban uh, uh, for duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and because of an amazing mega coalition, I'm sure a lot of people here um, were part of that in that meeting, uh, gave two extra units if you're permanently affordable, right? Because we can't require it. There's a state preemption that says cities and towns can't require affordability. So let's do a bonus instead and make our proud ground or Habitat for Humanity partners competitive in this market. So the numbers um, from, and again, residential input project became effective August 2021, um, and this is to February, so seven month, seven month snapshot, um, ADUs um, 36, duplexes 10, triplexes nine, fourplexes 72. So that's 371 homes people are building right now that could not be built without these zoning changes. I would say that that is a, a strong start. Hmm.
3: But I think that the flip to that is that 371 is number of units. It is also not so many units to be terrified. And so I think that that was one of the counter arguments we were hearing was that there was this great meme that went out. Someone made a Trojan horse and put it on top of a map. And then they had housing units falling out of the butt of the Trojan horse onto the city (laughs) of Portland, right? That we're going to be buried in housing
0: units. Well, but So it's easy to make fun of that flyer, but... It, maybe it also makes sense to reckon with the fears behind it. Absolutely. Um, because, and because they're not only about single-family zoning. They're about all kinds of fears people have about losing something that, that they have or perhaps losing something they don't have but want to have at some point. Um, and, and to go back to the economic piece, Rukai, I mean, the, also potentially the, the fear that probably their, their biggest economic holding could suffer somehow. And, and there are all kinds of, of fears people have, and I guess I'm wondering what you do with that. I mean, you'd said, so let's, let's, I'll, I'll go back to you first, um, Marisa, that you like the community engagement part of, of land use goals, and this is community engagement. I guess I'm wondering how you reckon with these fears, whether you think they're grounded in reality or not.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think fears are real, right? So I work in homelessness. There are a lot of fears that, that we understand where they come from. People are afraid of change. They're afraid of what they don't know or they don't understand, or they're afraid of what they imagine. So when I used to teach on the East Coast and you say the word density um, or upzoning, the Im- image of would kind of people's mind was Gotham, right? Everything is in the extreme. And so part of it is unpacking what are people's actual fears? What are their actual concerns? And then, and then how can you move a conversation forward that recognizes that those concerns are valid, except when they're very racist or classist, um, but you still have to work with those, right? Even if it's fear of people um, people of color or people who are poor, you have to be able to work with that, cons- those set of concerns. But as planners, you also have to draw the line at some point, right? Community engagement does not mean everybody gets their way, Right, So it's a chance to put a conversation into motion where you can work with people, understand what their concerns are, but you also have to sometimes say, I hear you, I appreciate you, and we're going forward with this. Well, it, it, <laughs> that—that's I, I, I just think you're so amazing.
1: I just think you're great. I think uh, you're amazing too. <laughs> so one other way to think about the fears, though, that I hear from people is I think there's a failure of imagination. So we can frame it as a fear of, of losing value in your home or losing a way of life, but also just a failure for us to paint a picture of what that life would actually be like, right? And I, I, I find that we're also wrestling in Portland with what home is, right? We project onto ourselves and other people this value that home is a single family detached house with a private park essentially in a yard. Um, and as we... mature into life and go through some of the uh, rites of passage, there are these really deep cultural um, bogs that we hit in defining what is home, how how do we step into community leadership, um, what do we share in common with our neighbors. And so I I don't think we've explored enough the the conception of home, what it will take to have the average Portlander Go from desiring a house in, you know, Montevilla or Mount Tabor, to living in dense, affordable housing in Lower Albina, right? To to think about an apartment as a home, not just a place that you live when you're 20. And and that you know that's going to take some work. You know, we have to be kinder to each other in that journey. I feel like we're not we're not working through some of those challenges, like about what that will mean, about how we get around the city what it will mean about how we carry our groceries home uh, from the store, what it will mean about where we buy our groceries. Will it be a big Fred Meyer that's, you know, know, one-stop shopping or will it be a bodega? How will it radically transform our lives? We just haven't had writers and thinkers helping us to take that walk into the future.
0: So for that example, are you imagining that that the failure of imagination is is a failure is also a failure of persuasion. That the person who says I, I want a home in Tabor or Montevilla, um, that if they if they just get enough information, they might realize that what they actually want, they could be happy in in some other place, or that that this is the, the most affordable option for them, and, and once they get there, things will be okay. I guess I'm trying to figure out what you mean by imagination. I'm
1: trying to detach this conversation from affordability, although that is a really important part of it. But I don't think we can get to um, the kind of logic brain thinking of affordability until we, can, until we pass through the emotional brain of home. And so, like... I'll use myself as an example. As as a young adult, I didn't live in Portland. I lived in dense urban cities, right? I lived in Gotham. And I I struggled with the concept of owning an apartment as a home that I would pass on to my children. That that really, I wrestled with that concept. So I I just think that there's something in this American imagination, maybe, maybe even our human imagination, that needs some guidance. There's some tenderness in there that we're missing in this conversation, in my opinion. But I, 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 it could just be me. Um, but, I, but I get the sense that as people age, and for example, my mom is at a point where she doesn't need a four-bedroom house, uh, you know, Portland, a traditional four-bedroom house. And so getting her to think about what life might be like on the 10th story of, of, of a multifamily building is a deep personal conversation to have with her before we even get to the affordability question. Mm-hmm. So I just think there are some, there's some tilling that we have to do in the spirit as we approach this. I also think we have to provide some space in the town square for us to engage emotionally, like to actually engage each other emotionally on this issue of home, which we 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 talk about houselessness and neighbors, but we're actually not engaging each other emotionally about the consequences of not having enough housing for people. We're talking about market forces and, you know, economics and investors. Well, what about, what about the people who are there? And I say that as an investor, (laughs) right? So So anyway, I I
3: mean, I, I love that you are optimistic about this. <laughs> but I mean I guess like my concerns are I I've been to some meetings in my neighborhood, St. John's, where there was supposed to be a sustained conversation about citing a village of people experiencing homelessness. And I had actually taught a land use class right before I went, where I'd been talking about the language that was used in the 1920s to talk about how to exclude people with zoning code and, you know, language around the, you know, racist terminology, language around health and disease and cleanliness. And I went to the St. John's Neighborhood Association meeting and it was in the bottom of a church. There were several hundred people packed in it was the exact same language being used. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were houseless who were there to share their stories, to try to connect with people. And the abuse that was hurled at them makes me wanna be, to rely on the law, to rely on our policies and say, whose labor is this to actually do, right? I agree with you, right? We should be able to connect as human beings, but at the same time, we have to actually get housing accomplished Mm rapidly and urgently. And that to me is where our policies and laws can yeah. come in. Yeah. But I love your optimism.
0: That's Marisa Zapata, the director of the Portland State University Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative. We have much more from our recent conversation from the Yimby Town Conference after a short break. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. If you are just tuning in, we have been listening today to a conversation we had about housing, justice, climate change, and more. We recorded it at Revolution Hall in Portland on the last night of the Yimby Town Festival. Our guests were Marisa Zapata, the director of the Portland State University Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative, Sam Diaz, the executive director of 1000 Friends of Oregon, Rukaya Adams, the chief investment officer at Meyer Memorial Trust, and Jerusalem Demsis, a policy writer at The Atlantic Magazine. The Yimbi in Yimbi Town is short for yes in my backyard. That's in contrast to people saying no to various kinds of development they don't want to see. So at one point, I asked Jerusalem about the forms of power that people, especially homeowners, actually have to say yes or no.
4: I mean, the real power, um, as as we've discussed, is in the ability to block housing. Um, these community meetings, um, these uh, you know, the community input process is really about giving people the power to delay. And what it does is even, I mean, even the, I mean, obviously, there's some level at which delay is important. You have to like think about the plan and like make a decision about where you're going to put housing and what it's going to look like. But, um, so all meetings in that form are delays, but the community input process basically says if you're willing to show up and scream at a public official, we're not gonna do what you don't like to do. And that is not a system of democratic governance. um, And, um, you know, in many states across the country we've seen um, EMV which is the yes in my backyard movement um, try and turn the tide and use this as a weapon for good in many cases in order to try to build more housing but that does not um, actually vindicate the system itself that it can be used for good um, it's still you know it's still not democratic to say that like someone has to show up at you know 9 pm 10 pm talk for hours, take often offensive abuse from other people in their community in order to have their voice heard by public officials. And also, on the public official side, in the U.S., we do not empower many of our elected officials, and also, more importantly, often people who are just government workers to say, "You can't scream at me. I'm doing what I'm doing best for the community. I'm listening to community input, and I'm going to implement a plan." Mm-hmm. And this is something you know that's unique to the United States in many ways um, that we do not empower our public and state workers in order to make those kinds of decisions, and often because they're under a political um, threat of like you know potentially losing their jobs or um, you know. Their uh, elected officials are at the behest of maybe only 100 or 200 voters for who actually shows up to local elections. And so, you know, the real power right now, to to like directly answer your question, is in the hands of who's willing to like yell the loudest, who is able to hire a lawyer and to sue and to sue and to sue repeatedly. And what that ends up doing often is that developers who are aware of this dynamic show up to these public meetings and they show up willing to give very, uh, and, and there's research about this. Homeowners, wealthy, often white homeowners, whatever they want in order to get yes on a project. This raises the cost of housing. It means affordable housing doesn't get built. It means homeless shelters don't get built. It means mass transit doesn't get built. It means renewable energy projects don't get built. All of these things are sacrificed in the name of a very unrepresented population, often who are working in interests that they themselves are not actually going to realize. Because what we do know is that while many people conceptualize um, densifying housing as being somehow reducing their economic opportunities or their own financial stake in their own house, there's significant research that shows that when you upzone, you actually raise the value of the property you have. Because it means that a developer is willing to buy that property from you for a higher number. So that means we're not actually acting in any of our own interests, and a lot of this has to do with breaking a lot of myths that have existed in American housing policy and American rhetoric for hundreds of years and are not actually rooted in reality.
0: Do you have a prescription for how to amend the process you just described so that there would be some version of meaningful public input, but Meaningful not-
4: public input is voting. But-
0: Meaning voting, and then representatives pass laws, and yeah. then and then if some project then passes muster. But but for example, so you you've also written about the National Environmental Policy Act, which which you've argued has, has been used improperly or maybe cynically to block various kinds of projects, including you know um, solar farms and and things. Um, it's also been used, it's been, being used right now to, to delay the, the I-5 expansion um, that, that Aaron Brown is, has, has helped to, to delay. Um, he doesn't want to get rid of the National Environmental Policy Act and, and, and make it so there's no requirement for an environmental impact statement. I guess I'm wondering how you keep what you like. And, and voting is a way, but, but in our system it's not the only way. And it doesn't seem like you're saying get rid of NEPA.
4: Um, I would get rid of Nipa, honestly, but uh, <laughs> sorry, Erin. Um, I think, I think there, there are a few things here. One is, just to take a step back here, um, I don't know if anyone in this room thinks that the United States is the best at making environmental protections, um, but that is not correct. Um, other countries, a lot of our peer countries, are able to do this without having a system of environmental protection that relies on lawsuits and that relies on individual people Using lawsuits, and I mean, who's gonna do that unless you're just extremely wealthy, extremely connected? And you know, I'm I'm glad that Aaron is doing that for for good in this case, but that still does not like vindicate the process in any way. And I think that what we see when we look at other countries who are able to instill environmental protections is that they have created an administrative state that empowers state officials that imbues them with the guidance and goals to protect the environment and make sure that they themselves are responsible and then people have elections because it, I, I just think that like in general what we want is that we want to vote for candidates, we want to see how they perform and then if we like what they do, we keep them in office and if we don't, we vote them out and we don't want a system of governance where I'm forced to think every single day about what is someone doing, am I tracking these meetings, am I going to these local elected officials meetings all the time, do I have to hold them accountable on a daily, weekly, monthly level, that's not a way of living that most people want to to do. They don't want to think about politics like that. And so, to create that world for people where they can spend their time with their kids, with their friends, with their, you know, doing fun things in Portland, um, you know, that requires creating a system of governments that runs without constant monitoring, because what we know is that if it requires constant monitoring, the only people who are doing that are wealthy individuals, and that does not provide a future that is actually accessible for everyone.
3: Jerusalem, I just want to say that you have killed the soul of every Portlander tonight. <laughs> I don't know how much you know about Portland's connection to advisory groups and boards. and <laughs> Sorry. The deep need that we have for us to be on 65 million things at one time. Um, I, I, I think it goes too far here, and I think that we do get very confused about the amount of power we actually have in our neighborhood associations and on our advisory boards. Um, they are advisory Right? we have very limited actual power because devolving power in this country to shared governance structures is actually quite hard to do legally um, I do think that there is a role for sustained community engagement though I'm not sure that it's you know it's, it's the public meeting has its own role but if we're talking about doing the emotional work that Rakaya is talking about the community building, there is a space for that kind of engagement, and I do think that having community members who are monitoring things that are happening can be powerful, and there are models on how we do that in ways that can create more inclusive and equitable structures, right? So thinking about how you schedule things, how you engage with people, whether you're being able to pay people, there's training programs with organizations to build capacity, right? But the idea that everyone should be able to go to a zoning meeting, of course, is absurd. Nobody has time for that unless you're in Portland and a professional volunteer. I have never i never lived any place where I have met so many people who know, one, what a land use planner is and knows exactly what the setback rules are for every single neighborhood. <laughs> they literally read these things at night for fun. Um, and- you know, we want to believe that does something in terms of our citizenry and our sense of community. I'm sure it does, but it isn't going to overcome these more inequitable issues. I do think there are ways, though, to keep people engaged. It just looks differently than, say, the zoning meeting. Because God, I don't even want to go to a zoning meeting. I'm a planner.
0: Um, so I want to, Marisa, I want to actually go back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of the our current case study of where homeless camps should go. In 2016, I, th- I think my timeline is right. You, you can correct me if it's wrong. In 2016, Portland voters passed a $258 million housing bond. In 2018, metro area voters passed a $650 million affordable housing bond. Then in 2020, voters said yes to Metro's supportive housing services tax. The plan was for all these different governments, a bunch of cities, three counties, um, to get together and, and work together to solve a, a really complex problem or series of problems. And then the pandemic happened, and a terrible problem of homelessness got way worse, um, and in many ways way more visible. Um, and the sense I've gotten uh, recently, in a kind of crescendo, is that a lot of Portlanders have simply gotten fed up with the pace of the response. How worried are you that, that now folks who voted for all of these things say, and, and for whom YIMBY would have been the answer two and a half years ago, now the, their default answer is, is no. I'm fed up, get rid of all of them.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm terrified. And I, I think that people don't necessarily um, understand that particularly the measure that was passed in 2020, the Supportive Housing Services measure, is one of the largest funds in the country to provide services for people who are on the cusp of homelessness or experiencing homelessness. Having that kind of unrestricted money that is not coming from the federal government changes the entire landscape to actually address this issue in a meaningful and forever way. Um, I, I, first of all, don't know how much worse the problem is. Right? I don't know how many more people are experiencing homelessness now. We had a massive change in policy during the pandemic where we were no longer sweeping camps. And so what that has meant is that people have stayed in place. We um, encouraged people to come in from further out early in the pandemic because people weren't able to access food and water. And it was easier to be able to serve people. So certainly there's been some sort of increase. But how much that actually is, um, we're not sure at this point. Um, I understand people's frustration. And there are areas that we know uh, where people are just seeing things that are heartbreaking. And um, you know, today my, my niece was in town and we were walking around my neighborhood and we saw someone who was in an acute mental health crisis, um, raising his voice at himself and pacing back and forth. And so she's six, seven, seven, and has a lot of questions about what that is. That is upsetting to see. And then when you add in um, not understanding what is taking so long, there is frustration. And I'm very afraid that that fund is gonna be threatened. I mean, it already is being threatened. People are trying to fight against that fund and repurpose it. Um, So I think that, you know, it's really just trying to continue to, to emphasize, going back to what Kriya said, we didn't end up in a housing shortage overnight, right? And I have some ideas about how we could be getting at housing faster, but the reality is acquiring units, whether you're renting them, buying them, or building them takes time. It takes time to hire staff and train them up in order to be able to bring people inside. And none of that is answered by shelter or tiny home villages. And that's where people pivot to because they're like, let's just move everyone into a shelter if we're gonna have to wait for a long time. But because of the NIMBY issues, shelters take as long as housing to open at this point. Well, I think we're, the, the bridge is scale
1: here, right? So Portland is unique unlike other cities in that we have big chunks of land where we actually could do massive, dense, affordable communities that would be entirely new, that could be zero carbon communities that could be adjacent to the, the central city. What I hope we do is get moving on some of those scalable opportunities in addition to the infill projects. because. Uh, just doing the math let's say we take 370 what two that were 7 months and average that out to 400 units per year i mean that's
3: that's not enough really and to and deal it's also
0: with, there's no guarantee that those are going to be affordable
3: but well, those units probably won't be affordable right, right i mean the, right. the ones so, that
0: from the the, the for the people pulling Permits in Portland for duplexes and triplexes. I'm assuming those are going to be $800,000 homes.
1: So, so I think the pressure, you know, to the extent that there's impatience with what's happening, I hope that some of the hot steam from that directs us toward large, scalable redevelopments of neighborhoods that will really increase the housing stock dramatically at once. Lower Albina is one example of where we could have probably 10,000 people could live in parking lots right now, right? Um, The Lloyd Center was an opportunity for the city to really take a big chunk of property and do something exciting. Um, We know that some of Metro's properties with the raceways will be redeveloped, so we have some opportunities there, maybe the Broadway Corridor project. So I just hope that uh, to the extent that our city, county, and Metro governments lean into these scalable opportunities that they do it, they get to it, because one of those could house 10,000 people, be an entirely new catchment with schools. And we just can't wring our hands and belly gaze anymore. Like, we, we've got to get to scale now.
0: We haven't talked very much about climate change tonight. Um, and and I think we should. I, I'm, I'm just curious how you think
2: it plays into everything we're talking about. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I mean... It, it's, it's interesting to, to think about, we're a land use organization, so we think about, all right, how do we manage the built environment um, to reach our goals? Housing goals uh, being one of them, climate goals being another, whether that's greenhouse gas emissions um, or whether it's resilience. And in Oregon, the land use planning program has, has really, I think, saved lives and saved homes because in Oregon, we don't let people build in the wildland-urban interface Right, My hometown of Redding in California, there were a thousand homes just burned down in the car fire in less than a day. And in Oregon, there's still, of course, heartbreak, still, of course, loss of life. It's not to the degree of our, of our neighbor to the south. And when I look to other programs like like State of California uh, grant programs, they're funding local governments to adopt urban growth boundaries to prevent that type of sprawl and to prevent that loss of life. So in Oregon, again, I think we have a great tool chest here. We gotta make sure the agencies implement on it equitably and in a robust way, but we have have a pretty good starting point um, here in our state.
3: I think in homelessness, it's showing up in some particularly acute ways, um, and for people who are housing insecure. So during the last wildfires, um, we discovered, because one of our our staff members was volunteering at a Red Cross shelter here in Multnomah County, that they were turning away people who were homeless, who um, had evacuated from the area because of wildfire smoke. And they said that you can't come because you don't have a permanent residence. And we're sending them, they were supposed to be sending them over to the county shelter that was next to them doing emergency things. Um, But actually, some people ended up leaving and going back outside. And so people are trying to survive in their camp still. We, of course, know that people lost their homes, particularly in these areas down south in Oregon. Um, And we saw a massive loss of mobile homes. And so a massive hit in affordable housing stock in towns has just been dusted. Um, The other thing that comes up for me with climate change um, is, is a really interesting tension between environmental advocacy around air conditioning units and the reality of needing to close your window to escape um, wildfire smoke. So if you need to close your window because of wildfire smoke or because it's very, very hot outside and there is no way to cool your home, you are now sitting in a heat box. And we don't talk about that a lot, right? People get really snotty with me. Oh, well, just because Texans love their AC. And I'm like, no, I'm asthmatic. And air conditioning is a is life force for me. And so thinking about the ways that we even build our housing units and what we expect out of them in terms of climate change.
1: I like to build on that too. And the work we're doing with Albina Vision, there's some thinking about how we can plan, again, dense, affordable central city housing uh, in a way that's climate resilient. How can we actually use our planning and development to ward off some of the the heat-related issues that we know are coming um, and climate change issues. So that, that's a design issue and planning issue, but also as we place more people in the central city, then folks are not taking, having to drive out to the edge of the city. And so you don't have as many cars on the on the road, um, the, the way that we'll consume and grocery shop will change. Um, so I, I actually think that again, scalable developments can have chunky impacts on the climate impact of an increasing population in the central city. And, and, you know, look, we don't have to go far away from this building to see the consequence of bulldozing central city housing in favor of parking spots, Mm. right? We we don't have to go far to see the effect of that. And and likewise, we won't have to go far to see the benefit of it. So I, I really actually hope that we begin to take seriously the redevelopment of the central city.
4: And and I'll just say one thing too is that I think that a lot uh, uh, what a lot of this brings up for me too is how many people conceptualize of environmentalism as an aesthetic versus how do we reduce climate emissions, and when you think of it as the former, you think oh I want you know I don't want new buildings I don't want new things I I just want it to look the same it means you're intruding on nature um, by building these things. What environmentalism really is, is you're building new climate-friendly buildings. These are not going to look like older buildings because the older buildings are not climate-friendly. So they're going to look different. It means you need to make sure that they are uh, have capacity for central AC. Across the country, a lot of places that were not building the types of homes that would have central AC, whether this is in the Northeast or here in Portland, um, now that climate change is changing how hot summers get, they are, Built environment is not equipped to just easily and simply put in a new unit, um, an AC unit, um, efficiently in any way, and so. The, the real problem here is that if you have an idea in your mind of what cons- conservation environmentalism looks like as being very pastoral, you're going to become opposed to the very solutions that are necessary. They're gonna look like wind turbines, they're gonna look futuristic, and and uh, solar panels, and you know, uh, the neighbors to the south in, in, in California, their version of NEPA, the sequa, uh, uh, they're using, uh, many people are using that to stop things like bike lanes in favor of parking lots, to stop things like solar farms, to stop things things like wind turbines and this is being done many times across the country by groups that call themselves environmental and climate change advocacy organizations. And that is because we have allowed for a long time our vision of what climate change advocacy to be, to be rooted in like this pastoral aesthetic versus what is actually reducing emissions. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I would add to that, that we often forget that humans are animals. Right, And as we think about <laughs> conservation, there's some conservation work we have to do with human habitats. And that we can take some of the pastoral frameworks, uh, uh, land use structures, land banking, those concepts that we use for wild spaces, and begin to think about how we might apply them to the human, to the human habitat and, and, and change the way that we live. Can you imagine conservation for, for us? Can you imagine black folks leading that? Because we're up to it, we're
0: up to it, right? Let's leave it there. (laughs) Rukaya, Jerusalem, Sam, and Marisa, thank you very much. Jerusalem Demsis is a policy writer at The Atlantic Magazine. Sam Diaz is the executive director of 1,000 Friends of Oregon. Rukaya Adams is the chief investment officer at Meyer Memorial Trust. And Marisa Zapata is the director of the Portland State University Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative. We recorded this conversation at Revolution Hall in Portland on the last night of the Yimby Town Festival. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow.
3: Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rosie Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael and Kristen Kern.